take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. It is my assignment today to preach in this first session on the unquestionable sovereignty of God. We will read this text of Scripture and then we will dive in together as we prepare ourselves for this week together. Read with me beginning in verse 33. Hear these words. This is the word of the living God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You may be seated if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we now bow before Your majestic throne, we ask Your blessings on this conference, on this first session, as we have the privilege to be from all around the world gathered here, not only in person, but also through live stream. And we pray that You would bless our study of Scripture, that You would increase our knowledge of who You are, that You would strengthen us to persevere in the faith to the very end, and may You gain all of the glory and the honor and the praise as we gather in this place to worship You. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. As we consider the landscape of this world and as we look over the past few years, especially here in this context in America, we have seen all sorts of problems. We have seen political controversies. We have seen government overreach, political propaganda. We have seen failed leadership and tyrannical control. We have seen financial unrest and military unrest. And yet in the midst of it all, God's people have been tested. As we look at the world around us, we see a rise in persecution among the Christian community. In the latest statistics that we have, we see that 360 million Christians, that's one in seven believers around the world, suffered significant persecution for their faith in recent years. Every day, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. In recent years, we have seen 24% increase in Christians killed for their faith. An estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned in North Korea's prison and labor camps, even now as we're gathered here for this conference. And today many voices are competing for answers, and yet we do need answers. And yet this conference is designed to help us see that we do not put our trust in princes or kings. We do not run from the public square and isolate ourselves in little bubbles and just muzzle the voice of God and plead for the return of Christ. That's not the path of faithful Christianity. We go on about life with confidence. We stand boldly in the faith. We declare the excellencies of Christ. We call sin what it is. We call leaders to account for their sin. We evangelize and we plant churches passionately. We labor for the glory of Christ. We go to bed at night. We sleep well. We let the chips fall where they may. And we trust that God is in control of everything. So my assignment in this first session of this conference is to frame this conference in such a way as to help us see that, yes, God is sovereign over the entire universe. He is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over every person in this room, over every family in this room, over every church represented in this room. He is sovereign over this nation, and He is sovereign over the hearts of depraved sinners. At the time of the writing of this letter, 
We find that some one million people lived in Rome. Caesar made his home there. Rome was the center of military and political and legislative power. It was not just a strategic city in this ancient landscape. It was the most strategic city in the world. And yet Paul wrote a letter to the church that was in this very city, the city of Rome. And as we look at the way that he structures this letter, he spends the first 11 chapters centering his argument and unpacking, if you will, the doctrine of salvation, focusing in on justification by faith alone in Christ alone for the remission of sin. He comes to the end of chapter 11 and there's a hinge. And what we see is a transition in Rome, in Romans. What we see is that he, he transitions from the doctrinal aspect of salvation to then directing the church to see how the church should live in light of that truth, the practical outworking of the faith. It's really in many ways like Paul starts in the, in the, the, the deep of some vast canyon and he works his way up the trails and he climbs up the, the rock walls and the ledges and he makes his way to a breathtaking summit. And then he looks back and he sees everything. He can see where he has been. He can see how he has dealt with uh, human depravity and the sovereignty of God and saving sinners and the judgment of God and the grace of God and the, the doctrine of God's election. And he comes all the way to this summit and he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed with what he sees. He moves at this juncture from knowing God to obeying God, from what to know to how to live, from why to worship to how to worship, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. But before he makes this transition, what we see is this wonderful doxology. From verses 33 to 36, we see this praise saying. That's what a doxology is. We sing doxologies like Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we have doxologies in the Old Testament. We can see doxologies in the New Testament, for instance. In Galatians 1.5, we see, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, we see a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We see a doxology in Philippians 4.20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In Jude, we see a doxology. Verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We see doxologies all throughout Scripture. And here we have this wonderful, majestic doxology as we come to the close of Romans 1 through 11. In many ways, you could say that this doxology summarizes everything that he has written to the church at Rome in the first 11 chapters, but primarily that focus of chapters 9 through 11. As I begin this conference on the sovereignty of God, let us be mindful of this truth. When we come to the last sermon and the final amen of this conference, we will have only begun to scratch the surface of this tremendous doctrine, the sovereignty of God. Well, let's give attention to this doxology. The first thing that we see in verses 33 through 35 is the greatness of our sovereign God in saving sinners. When Paul speaks in other places in Scripture, he he will make statements like this, for instance, the riches of God's grace. He, he says that in Ephesians 1.7, or the riches of his kindness 
He speaks like that in Romans 2.4. Or the riches of his glory. He, he writes that in Romans 9.23. What's the point? The point is this. Is that in the riches of God, undeserving sinners are lavished with unspeakable riches by the sovereign grace of God. Now, in this passage, we will see, yes, God is sovereign over everything. But He is worthy of praise, not just for the creation of the universe, but for the salvation of your soul. And let us praise Him. That's why we see, as we read Scripture, we see that, yes, He is a sovereign God. He is in control of everything. But yes, He he is in control of salvation. That's why Jesus says in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why the angel said to, to Joseph, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He doesn't say he might save. He could save. He says he shall save. Consider the greatness of God. As this doxology begins, we see the word O. Oh. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. The word oh. This is an all-encompassing word or statement, if you will, that points to the depth of the riches of the grace of our God. In other words, our God is not a God that can be treated like a puppet on a string. He's not the God that you can unbox at Thanksgiving and then just store him away again about New Year's Day. Doesn't work this way. Our God is sovereign. He is not a God that you can control. He is not a God that you can overpower. He is not a God that you can manipulate. He's not a deified grandfather figure. And as we consider his plan to save sinners, this plan is not shallow. It's not superficial. It's not some sappy sentimentality. When Paul reaches the peak of this grand truth, after traversing some 11 chapters dealing with the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, his response is, oh, oh, it's unspeakable. Oh, is the response of a man who is truly overwhelmed with the sovereignty of God in saving rebel God-haters. And by the way, we should have more worship services on the average Lord's Day that are filled with, oh. We have a lot of worship services that are filled with oohs and mmms and all sorts of other things. But more ohs are needed. Oh, we are undeserving. Oh, God is so good to us. Oh, we must praise Him. That's what comes from the mouth of this apostle who not only considers the sovereignty of God in saving sinners in a generic sense, but also his own soul. As he recalls his trek on the Damascus Road when God humbled him to the dust of planet Earth and saved him. But we see not only the greatness of God considered, but the greatness of His riches and wisdom. Look at verse 33 again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Consider, if you will, the depth. The depth. When you think about submarines descending beneath the surface of the ocean, uh, the submarine will only go so far beneath the surface before light is necessary to see because the, the light is now pre prevented from descending into the depths of the ocean. And then the pressure is so immense that the smallest compromise or fracture in the vessel walls will lead to a catastrophic implosion. And we've seen this recently as we look back at the news and we have seen the, the catastrophic implosion of the sea vessel as it descended recently over the wreck of the Titanic. We consider the deepest part of the ocean, the Challenger Deep, is the deepest known point in the Earth's ocean. And it's estimated to be 
some 36,070 feet deep, which is 7,000 feet deeper than Mount Everest is tall. And we think about the deepest recorded dive of a scuba diver. A scuba diver has only been able to descend 1,050 feet. The deepest descent of a submarine was recorded in 2019 at 35,849 feet there over the Challenger Deep. But unlike planet Earth, God is far deeper. There are depths to God that have yet to be explored or seen. There are truths about God that we have never yet learned. And we will still be learning these truths and learning this sovereign God three trillion years from this morning. And what a wonderful thing that is to consider. All of eternity future in the new heavens and the new, in the new earth will not be as I thought it would be when I was a child. Some long, stale, boring worship service. It will not be that way. We will learn who God is and know Him in ways that we have yet to know Him as we see Him face to face. What a wonderful day that shall be. Consider His wisdom. There are words in the Scripture like as Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-7, through 7, and we see language about the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The word hidden there is a word that is speaking about the private counsel of God. And yet what we must understand is when we think about something that's secret or hidden wisdom of God, we don't need to be thinking in terms of mystery that has yet to be revealed. Now the secret things belong to God, but the things that have been revealed are for us. And oftentimes when we see this word mystery, It's talking about what was once mystery, but has now been unveiled in the preaching and proclamation of God's word. What a wonderful thing that is to consider. As we look at the scriptures and consider the wisdom of God, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, we find Paul writing to the church at Corinth and he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The apex of God's wisdom is the redemptive story fulfilled by the son of the living God. The great wisdom of God was hidden, but has now been revealed. That's what the Apostle Paul has been laboring to unpack for these first 11 chapters in the book of Romans. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the priest greater than Melchizedek. Jesus is the king greater than David. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He is the expressed image of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the hope of the nations. This is not the wisdom of some seminary or the wisdom of some denomination. This is the wisdom of God that has been unpacked throughout Romans chapters 1 through 11. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. John MacArthur writes, quote, God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all his good pleasure to glorify himself, end quote. Not only the wisdom of God, but look at the scripture here in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Consider the knowledge of God. A.W. Pink says, God's knowledge of the future is as complete as is his knowledge of the past and the present. And that because 
the future depends entirely upon himself, end quote. There is never a moment, not even a brief second that passes where God lacks perfect knowledge. He has perfect knowledge because God is in control of all things. He's in charge of all things. He is in control of the future. That's why this false idea, by the way, when you're studying the sovereignty of God and salvation, that God just looks through the tunnel of time to see what Jim will do, whatever Jim is out here today, whatever Jim will do, and then based upon what Jim does, then God responds and does his electing. That is not the story of salvation. God is in control of everything. He not only knows the future, seeing it, possessing full knowledge of it without any cloud that might prevent him from seeing everything as it is. But he is in control of how things work out. He lays out this plan with precision. But his knowledge involves his saving knowledge. Yes, he knows everything. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows everything that you need before you even pray and ask for it. He has complete knowledge of his creation. He knows the size of the universe. It's estimated to be at 93 billion light years in diameter, containing stars and planets and human life and animal life and plant life. With great precision, God has ordered everything to the point that if earth were just a fraction closer to the sun, we would be scorched. If we were a fraction farther away from the sun, we would freeze. And all of the laws of nature God has established in such a way that we breathe, that we eat, that we are supplied with water, and so on and so forth. All of this is under God's complete genius and His knowledge. And yet, they estimate that the universe contains some 100 billion to 200 billion galaxies. And here we are in just one of those galaxies, the Milky Way. And all of his creation is so vast, even as you just think about this one little planet, planet Earth. You consider the fact that there are some 30,000 different species of fish. You think about the fact that the smallest in the West Pacific Ocean is one centimeter in length. And the largest is the whale shark that can span upwards of 50 feet. It's amazing when you consider the vastness of God's knowledge and his genius and his capacity not only to know all things. I read an article recently where when they went down to the depth of the Challenger Deep in the submarine that they were finding fish and certain types of fish that they had never seen before. And yet God knows them. God has created them. He knows about the ostrich. He knows about the bee hummingbird. He knows about all things. He is before all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Heaven, earth, clouds, rain, snow, ice, bees, bears, locusts, lions, slaves, and kings. He knows it all. He knows about events, wars, and rumors of wars, elections. He knows about thrones and kingdoms. He knows about the invisible world, the angelic beings, the demonic beings, Satan, that ancient dragon. He knows it all. But yet with all of this considered, the knowledge that's being spoken of here in this doxology as Paul looks back and as he is overwhelmed with it all, it's about the saving knowledge of God for his people. That's the context. God knows his people. That's why in John 10, 27, we find these words, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You see, God has not forgotten his people. And if you just look at the, the context of this passage, you will see that Paul is answering those very questions and those objections. Would God forget his covenant with Israel? Would God forget his people? 
And the answer is obvious. No, God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten the Jews. God has not forgotten his covenant. God has not forgotten the church, both Jew and Gentile. This is a statement regarding the saving knowledge of God's love for his people. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is the love of God. Consider the greatness of God's judgments. We read on. How unsearchable are his judgments. This is a statement that's not in reference to God's wrath. This is a statement related to God's decision to save his people. Why is it that God chooses to save his people? Why is it that God chooses to love Jacob and hate Esau? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says... The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's judgments, His, His decisions, God's decisions involve the future, the things that have yet to be revealed to us, the present, what's happening even in this room, God sees all things. The eyes of the Lord, according to Proverbs 15, verse 3, are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good, because God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's knowledge is perfect and whole and complete, and it's vast beyond measure. And unlike God, we lack the ability to understand these judgments. Why God would choose to do something. Sometimes we experience how God would do certain things, and it catches us off guard. But He is determined to do certain things. And whatever God determines to do, it will indeed come to pass. God's decisions are sovereign decisions. But not only His decisions, consider the next phrase, how inscrutable His ways. The the word judgments is in reference to God's decisions, and His ways are His actions that bring about those decisions that accomplish what He has determined to come to pass. This is the path that God moves in His creation to accomplish His ultimate glory. And who would dare question that? Psalm 99 verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Why would God allow a hurricane to smash into the coastline of Florida, destroying homes and taking lives? Why would God bring about a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Morocco, taking the lives of 2,900 people recently? One minute they're eating and drinking, and the next minute they're gone. And you see, we don't understand all of those things. Sometimes these types of ways of God, they they catch us off guard a bit. I remember back early in life, I remember sometime earlier in my ministry dealing with tragedy and circumstances. I can remember even back to my wedding day when my best friend William Harrell was in my wedding And then the very next April, that was in October, the very next April, here we are as two young preachers 
that are just overzealous and dreaming about ministry together, working at the same place in Atlanta, Georgia. And at lunch over Subway sandwiches, we would dream about ministry and preaching and, and church ministry together. And we would go out on Tuesday evenings and we would share the gospel. And that day at lunch, he said, hey, listen, I'm going to go to Zaxby's tonight. I'm going to share the gospel with my brother. He said, so you need to go out with someone else tonight. And so I did. I went, I called another friend. We went out. We shared the gospel. That Tuesday, I went home and about midnight, I received a phone call. And when I answered the phone, it was my pastor. And at that very moment, it was like I just knew everything, everything wasn't right. And he told me, he said, William never made it home tonight. He said he was on his way home. He went through an intersection. He was T-boned in the side of the car and almost instantaneously into the very presence of God. My wife and I, we got dressed. We went over to his wife's home, his now widowed wife, and with a group of friends, we tried to help her, to console her, to pray for her. And it was in, in those moments that we were asking questions like, why? She was 10 weeks pregnant with their first child. And sometimes in the midst of those moments, you don't understand the ways of God. But yet, it was almost as if we could just sense that, yes, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the confusion, that God was not far from us. He was near to us. It was one of the worst days of my life. And I can remember that. And yet, there, it's, it's almost like the, the words of William Cooper's hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He goes on and says, Deep and unfathomable minds, of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. And then there's this line, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. The next January, my wife and I would pack up our belongings in a U-Haul truck and we would move north to Louisville, Kentucky for seminary. And we would meet new friends and we met a man that we became friends with. His name is Chip Thornton. The next December, we came home and we're visiting family over Christmas break. We met with William's widowed wife, Carrie is her name. And my wife, Carrie, talks to our friend, Carrie, and asked about, at this point, whether she would remarry, whether or not she had plans and a desire in her heart to remarry. She said, undoubtedly, she knew that she would remarry one day. And so then the story goes like this. My wife set up our new friend in Louisville with my best friend's wife, widow, and they, in God's good providence, would meet, and then they would marry, and then the rest is history. They're serving the Lord in Alabama, in a small town, in a local church, with a house full of children, because behind a frowning providence, God hid a smiling face. We didn't know it. We couldn't see it. Because it's God's way, and yet we were limited in our ability to discern and to understand. But get this, not just His way in the operation of the intricate details of our lives or the ordering of the steps of men, women, boys, and girls, but get this, in the salvation of sinners. Even the disciples, when Jesus walked with them, would say, 
I'm going to be handed over to sinful men. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. And they still did not understand it fully until the resurrection. Consider this, dear friend. Consider the the ways of God, his path in saving sinners. That he chose you out of a sea of depraved sinners. He lavished you with his saving grace. He extended mercy to your guilty soul. He redeemed you with the blood of his son so that one day in the ages to come, he will present you faultless before the throne of our sovereign God. This is the way of our sovereign God. Consider the greatness of God confirmed. There are three questions to confirm this. Verses 34 and 35, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We see these questions coming from Isaiah and from Job. Paul quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 13, the legacy standard Bible reads this way. Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh or as his counselor has informed him? You just think about the president of the United States. You think about how the president always, as the leader of the free world, you might say, always has an army of counselors around him. We'll have military counselors, financial counselors, religious counselors. There are counselors all around the president to help him act in a way that is wise and good. And yet, God does not need anyone to counsel him. He does not need to Google anything. He does not need chat GPT. He does not need to know anything else. He does not need help in any way. He is God. He is sovereign. He is self-sufficient. He is authoritative and he does not need to be counseled. Consider the song that we were singing, behold our God who has given counsel to the Lord. Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? And the answer is obvious. No one. No one can counsel him. And then, of course, we see a final question from Job. Job 41.11. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God never goes into debt. Many of us in this room could say, well, we have debt. God has no debt. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe anyone anything. He doesn't owe us another sunrise or another sunset. God doesn't owe you the next breath in your lungs. God owes no one a thing. R.C. Sproul said it this way, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there is not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass, end quote. He doesn't need help from anyone. He controls every molecule. He is sovereign over everything. His decisions are sovereign. His decisions are wise. His ways are good. And he deserves to be praised in the salvation of sinners. We also see, second of all, the irrefutable sovereignty of God to save sinners in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things... Notice that statement. This is a colossal statement. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, quote, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, end quote. In many ways, it's a summary of this very statement, is it not? He is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, bond and free, man, woman, boy, and girl, for the glory of his name. We see this. And yet, as we look at this statement, we see God is the designer of salvation. 
God is the architect, if you will. Acts 2, 23 speaks about the predetermined plan of God. Ephesians 1, 11 speaks about the counsel of his will. He is the designer of salvation. You might go into a vast building. You might look at the architecture. You might look at the stone carvings. You might look at the trim. You might look at the layout of the actual building. And you might be impressed by the design. And you might find some statement on a wall that speaks about the designer of this vast building. And yet when you look, as Paul is doing, back over these 11 chapters, he is seeing that this sovereign God is in control of all things. This sovereign God has acted in ways that we could never fathom, that we could never comprehend fully. He is the designer of salvation. It brings to mind the words of Charles Wesley in his song, And Can It Be? Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He is also the supplier of salvation. He is the supplier. You see, God is not only the architect, the designer, but He is the source and the supplier of salvation. Buddha can't save anyone. Muhammad can't save anyone. Allah can't save anyone. Joseph Smith can't save anyone. Mary Baker Eddy can't save anyone. Charles Taze Russell can't save anyone. But it is only Christ who can save sinners. And this is the the design and also the supply of salvation from our triune God. That the second person of the Godhead, the Son of the living God would be born of a virgin, would take upon himself human flesh, would live a sinless life upholding the law of God, would be crushed under the weight and the wrath of God upon the cross, would be buried in a borrowed tomb, and would be resurrected triumphantly on the third day, proving the fact that he is indeed very God of very God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of these days, this very Christ shall return and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the source and the supply of salvation. That's why that word to Joseph from the angel that she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, the saving name of Christ, that he shall save his people from their sins. He is the all-sufficient Savior. Consider also that God is the goal of salvation. Not only from Him and through Him, but also to Him are all things. Yes, you could say that general revelation and the creation of the universe and the little flower that blooms on the backside of the Grand Canyon where there is no path or trail nearby, that it will bloom in the spring and it will wither in the winter and no one ever even saw it, but God did. You could say, yes, all of it brings glory to God. The smallest particle floating around in the expanse of the universe is bringing glory to God. You could talk about even the judgment of sinners bringing glory to God. The context here is God's saving love for his people. The ultimate goal of salvation is not that we would just merely miss the flames of hell. The ultimate ambition of salvation is not that we would just enjoy the wonderful food in the new heavens and the new earth. You ever just stop and just think about what that's going to be like one day with glorified taste buds and the food that's not filled with human depravity, what it will taste like? Or am I the only one out of 8,200 people that thinks like that? Our highest goal is not that we would just walk a street of gold but it is that we would be with God. Revelation 21 verse 3, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the ultimate goal of God's sovereign grace. That we would be with him. When Jesus came in human flesh, he tabernacled among his people. It's a foreshadowing of one day when when we are with God in all of eternity, future. This is to him are all things. And the final thing is the glory of our sovereign God in the saving of sinners. How does the doxology end? To Him be glory forever. Amen. Glory to God. Glory to God. This is the goal. Psalm 29 verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Psalm 29 verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. Consider Psalm 96 verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And this is the point. This is the point that in the preaching of the gospel, as God calls out of darkness into his marvelous light, as God saves sinners from Every tongue, tribe, and nation, and people on planet earth, it is all for the glory of God. Throughout the Reformation, there were these slogans known as the the five solas. The five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and solideo gloria. To God alone be glory. Johann Sebastian Bach is one of history's greatest composers. If you travel to London and you go into the British library, you will find some manuscripts of Bach there on display. And if you look at those manuscripts, what you will see often is there on that manuscript someplace will be J.S.B. S.D.G. Why? Because Bach understood this. Although he wrote some for the concert hall, he also wrote for the church. But what he knew was this, is that everything is for the glory of God. Eating and sleeping for the glory of God. Drinking and working for the glory of God. Marriage for the glory of God and writing music for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what your occupation is in this room today. It's all for the glory of God. But here it is, for the salvation of sinners. This is the way that this doxology finishes. This is what Paul says as he looks back over this massive landscape. He says, To Him be glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful statement. Not just glory to God, but glory to God forever. As we think about conferences like this, you're charged up and excited. You've had three and a half cups of coffee this morning. You're ready to go. You can't wait. And then suddenly you're going to find yourself traveling back home in just a few days. You're going to be like, man, that was two years in waiting and now it's over. And there's going to be just a little bit of disappointment. Now you're going to be happy to go to sleep, but there's going to be a little bit of disappointment. Conferences come and conferences go. Vacations come, vacations go. Life comes and life goes. Health comes and health goes. But God's glory never ends. What is the catechism question? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So what is the chief end in salvation? Is that God would be glorified. That the glory would never end. Throughout eternity future, 300 trillion years into eternity future, God will still be being glorified for saving wretched God-haters and sinners 
Because God is the designer and the architect of salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. And there is no one that will strut into the gates of pearl and down the street of gold, just patting themselves on the back as if they did it so that God could congratulate them. God will receive the glory. And then the final word, amen. It's as if Paul amends his own preaching. I mean, it's, it, it, sometimes in church, that's necessary. So at conferences, we come to learn things. Here's just my encouragement to you. When you hear truth, it's okay to say amen. And he comes to the vast end of this journey, chapters 1 through 11. And he sees it all for what it is. And he's overwhelmed. And he knows that it's all for the glory of our sovereign God. And then the final word is he agrees and he says, Amen. As we continue to navigate the complexities of life and as the church continues to experience the increasing pressures of this God, of this God-hating culture, the church must remain faithful. The church must persevere to the very end. The church is called to be overcomers. We're not called to be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. And we must labor with passion and we must labor with confidence and we must preach the gospel faithfully and do just exactly what Paul does. He preaches the gospel faithfully. He declares the truth of salvation. He, he, proclaims and he announces the sovereignty of God over all things to the very point that he would have his head cut off in the streets of Rome. So dear brothers and sisters, understand this. When we leave this conference and we go back into this God-hating culture, you're going to have to commit yourself to being faithful to the very end with confidence that our God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the universe. He is sovereign over the salvation of sinners to the church plants in this room. And you're praying with your team about God growing your church. You need to be faithful and you need to evangelize and share the gospel, but don't trust in your marketing. Trust in our sovereign God. And when you experience political pressures, even trials and tribulations or persecutions when they come, have confidence that our God is in control. You see, Pharaoh was never sovereign. Caesar, never sovereign. The king and queen of England, never sovereign. The president of the United States, never sovereign. Dictators are not sovereign. Czars are not sovereign. The devil himself, that ancient serpent, that ancient dragon is not sovereign. Ultimate authority and sovereignty is possessed by our sovereign God. His throne is lifted up. His authority never ends. His throne is eternal. All praise and honor be to this sovereign God forever and forever and forever. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless you.